This is the Learning Curve Podcast, and I'm Pastor Scott Rambo. Welcome to the classroom. Let's dive into the Word of God and see what He has to say to us today. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 1. That's where we'll be uh, at the beginning. We'll also be in Isaiah. We'll also be in 2 Kings. And we're going to end in Matthew 19. So uh, before we get started, I just want to say that I am forever flabbergasted at the the sufficiency of the Word of God. Uh, The questions that we have today... We don't have a specific text that tells us the answers, but if we dig into the word enough, we get enough detail that we can we can put together a uh, a comprehensive thought. And uh, that's only through the word of God, the the Bible, the 66 books that make up our holy Bible have been God breathed. That's what we believe. And they are all sufficient. Literally for every question, whether it's big or small, complex or simple, the answers are in this book. Even if the answer is God didn't tell us directly, we have context that we can go off of to extrapolate a, uh, a good, robust theology and, and a doctrine for that. So it's that, that's, that's only God, y'all. There, there's no book in this world that can stand the test of time and still be relevant for this present age. And, and I, I have faith because of what I've read in this book that it's going to be not only sufficient for this present age, but for this age to come. The Bible says that in itself, does it not? Everything is going to pass away, but what's going to endure? The Word of God. The Word of God. So Daniel chapter 1, we'll read through verse 7. We really, we really need to read the whole, the the whole chapter. But we can, uh, most of us, by we've read Daniel at least the first chapter, right? We, we know we can talk about it and, and get its context. But we'll we'll begin in verse one. It says, "In the third year of the reign of Jeroboam, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave." Jerokim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, use in whom was no defect, who were good-looking. Don't you? The Bible's detailed, right? So you, you want to know what Daniel looked like? He was good-looking. There it is right there, okay? You want to know what Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego looked like? They were good-looking. They were the best. They were the cream of the crop, right? So who were good-looking, but not only good-looking, showing intelligence, in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and whom had a, a ability to serve in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a da- uh, daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and uh, Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Okay? So that is our text. And uh, it continues on. Daniel standing up, right? Verse 8 starts off pretty quick. Daniel stands up, goes to the chief of the officials, depending on your, your uh, translation, the chief of the eunuchs. We'll get into that. That's one of the questions for tonight. And uh, 
he basically says, look, the, this king's meat, who, if you understand history, would have been sacrificed to idols, then given to the king, the choice sacrifices given to the kings, then given to these Hebrews. Uh, he said, look, if we eat that, we're going to be defiled uh, uh, towards our God. We can't do that. And the chief of the eunuchs said, well, here's the problem. If you don't do what I've been commanded to do, and three years pass, and I go and show you to the king, and he disapproves, he's going to take my head. Like This is a pretty big deal. So Daniel uh, challenges this official, and he says, Give us pulse and water, or vegetables and water, for ten days. Now, they're going to be doing this for three years, right? They're, they're, they're learning a new language. Not only the language, but they're learning the syntax, they're learning the culture, they're learning the religion, they're learning the new gods. They're, they're learning everything that they need to know in order to be put into the king's service in his court. All right. So the goal from the capture of Israel to when Daniel picks up, okay, we have prophecies of the Babylonians coming all throughout the Old Testament, starting all the way in Leviticus, if you believe that or not. Leviticus 26, I believe it is. And uh, from then to when Daniel's first-hand account starts, the goal is to raise up a group of leaders, a group of Hebrew leaders, that have their service and their devotion to the king of Babylon in order to set up Back in Israel, history says, because they just conquered this new land. The best way, that we, history repeats itself, right? So we don't know a lot about the Babylonians. We know more about the Romans because we're closer to them. Romans did the same thing. They said their goal was to use the people to govern the people because it's harder to revolt against your own kind. Okay. So that's what Daniel was about to be brainwashed to do. This is three years of, of pagan brainwashing to set up a Hebrew leader or leaders. Daniel isn't the only one. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego aren't the only ones. Then to be put into service for Nebuchadnezzar back in their homeland. That, that's the goal, okay? So Daniel says we can't do that. We have three years of this. I'm telling you, we're going we're gonna to hunger strike. Something's not going to work. But if you give us vegetables, if you let us keep our dietary kosher laws, I promise you, we'll be better than these others. And, and they put that to the test. For 10 days, all they ate was vegetables and water. Okay? And if we can find the verse real quick. Uh, verse 15. So these four boys, okay, we don't know their age. We know that they were youth, they were young, anywhere from the ages of 13 to 20 is what history says, okay? These four boys ate nothing but vegetables and water for 10 days, okay? These other youths ate choice meats, drank choice wines, anything and everything that they wanted. And after 10 days, verse 15 says, at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter, okay, than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. That's not for us to say if we cut out meat from our dietary palates and eat only vegetables and drink only water, we're going to be healthier. That's to show that this was a miracle brought on by God, that they ate literally nothing for 10 days, and God, God showed his favor towards them, okay? This is all to gain the respect of this chief of eunuchs, this chief court official, because for three years, he's going to be their leader, their teacher, and they're able to keep their Hebrew roots. They're able to keep their laws and their customs for these three years while also learning this pagan religion, okay? That's the importance of Daniel chapter 1. Because the end of it, you see, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So even in Daniel 1, he's telling you his entire service. The Daniel 1, verse 1, in the third year of our king's reign, we were taken out of our land. At the end of Daniel chapter 1, in verse 21, he says, 
I served all the way up through Nebuchadnezzar to another king. Okay. Why is all of that important? Well, because it's in the Bible, right? That's an easy question. But let us look at, uh, I did a little overview for Daniel, because this is Daniel 1. We're not going to go through the entirety of the book. My Lord, that would take some time. Uh, TBD, maybe we will one day. But while we're here, we can go ahead and give an overview, because it's good. We're starting a new year. Uh, For us who are reading through the Bible in a year, you're going to be in Daniel, right? It depended on what, if you're doing genres or chronological or reading straight through, you're, you're going to read Daniel. So the genre of the book of Daniel is narrative history. This is important. This is, this is how we start to understand how we interpret the scriptures. Okay. So it's narrative history. It is prophetic oracle. And it also includes uh, apocalyptic material. It's, it, it's, it's a mixture of genres depending on where you are. The prophet Daniel wrote it around 530 B.C., okay, and his writings record the events of the Babylonian captivity in 560 through 536 B.C. So basically that, what's that saying is the book of Daniel was roughly written after the three years of this learning period when he is placed in leadership. He's given freedom then to do, he's a leader, to do whatever he wants as long as he does it devoted to the king Nebuchadnezzar. He's able, he's given journals, he's able to write, he's able, he's not a slave, even though he's a captor, he's not a slave, he's in the king's court, so he writes this book, okay? This needs to be documented. We just got stripped out of our land. Everything we know is gone. Everything is destroyed. All of our records, all of, so I'm going to write this book, right? And that's where we get a lot of our, what we call minor prophets. They all wrote a lot. Because they were literally starting over history. It had to start there. They felt, they felt it important, just as we would for us. If you realize that one day you woke up and, and the history of your family and your people was gone, you'd probably pick up a pen and paper as well, right? i got to write down what I know for the future. Uh, it also describes the uh, apocalyptic visions given by God reveals the events and the plans for everyone's future. Key uh, personalities in the book, of course, is Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Belshazzar, that's not Daniel's name, that's a different person, and Darius, King Darius. The purpose of the book is to provide a historical account how the Lord God protected and provided for his faithful followers while in captivity. That's important. It's important to understand why books are written, right? Whenever we started going through Mark over a year ago, the introduction of Mark was determined that the the reason Mark wrote that gospel is to show God the Son in his, his servanthood, right? That's why we have four different gospels. It shows the different sides of Christ. Daniel wrote because he was given a vision. <laughs> he was given a vision, and at the end of it, it was sealed. He, he couldn't even talk about it, but we have it today. It's for us today. Uh, but the purpose of the book is to provide a historical account of how even in their punishment, in their judgment, in their captivity, God and his providence was raising up leaders in a pagan world to preserve his chosen people. That's why Daniel's written. That's why uh, uh, Habakkuk is written. That's why all of, all of these books are written is to show God in his sovereignty, in his provision, even when it meant judgment, he was still making a way. Okay? They weren't going to be wiped off the face of the earth, which is pretty neat because there were people groups who were. Right? Very easily, very easily. Tell me what sin Israel Israel didn't do that any of the Canaanites did. You can't. They done every sin that the Canaanites did and worse. And and God tells J, uh, Jacob to wipe them out. Very easily could have said, "No, we're going to wipe y'all out." But he he provided. Why? For people like me and like you. There had to be a king. 
There had to be a king to come. Amen. In chapters 1 through 6, okay, Daniel writes about his own life in captivity. Uh, he was selected to work for the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he has his name changed. His friends are bold, uh, bold, and they have tough decisions several times displaying their integrity to stand for godliness instead of culture. They rejected the king's food, prayed when it was illegal to do so, and refused to bow to the king's idol for which they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Each one, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had their fiery furnace to go through. Daniel had his lion's den to go through. They all were given at different times the ability to stand up for God, which is pretty neat. That's a blessing. You say, what? That's a blessing? Yes, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. So chapters 1 through 6, historical, prophetic oracle. Okay, that's the narrative. That's the genre. Chapter 7 through 12, that's the apocalyptic. That's the vision. So that doesn't mean anything for us tonight, but for your own study, knowing what genre the book is written in tells us how to interpret it, right? So the first part of Daniel, we can take pretty literal. The second half of Daniel, we have symbolism, we have numbers, we have, we have visions of the end times. We interpret it differently, okay? So don't interpret the first six chapters like you interpret the last six chapters because you're going to get very confused and you're not going to know what's going on. Our questions for tonight. That's our overview of Daniel. Y'all ready for your questions? Was Daniel and the Hebrews eunuchs in every sense of the term? And why did Daniel and the Hebrews receive new names? That's the questions that was asked on our uh, for Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to cover both of them. If you will, let me cover the names first while I build up the courage to talk about, <laughs> about the other. <laughs> uh, I spent about four hours Google searching Unix. I don't, I don't do that. Uh, you find out way more information than you want to know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, hard questions are hard questions for different reasons, right? But no, it, it, this is good. It really is because questions like this, we're not talking about salvation or, or, or anything like that, right? But as a pastor, what this shows me is somebody at least is reading their Bible and they have questions, right? So... This is great stuff. There's nothing wrong with this at all. Because if, we'll, if we can endeavor to answer a question like, was Daniel a eunuch? Then that tells me we have the boldness to endeavor to talk about salvation and holiness and the things that, that, build, that build our faith. Okay? And we'll have some of that in here too because we can't, we can't have a Bible lesson without talking about Christ. He's in every single thing. So, first we will answer, what's with the names? Why did they get their names changed? Okay, It's pretty straightforward. Uh, Daniel 6 tells us the names of the four youths that play key roles in this, this book. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Isaiah. Oh, no, not Isaiah. <laughs> Azariah. Isaiah is not in this one. Uh, but we immediately learn that they're given new names. So verse 6 tells us their Hebrew names. The very next verse says that's not their names anymore. Okay, So they are captors at this point. They are in a foreign land. And they're being brainwashed into becoming the court or the leaders or the officials or as the Bible calls them, the eunuchs of King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, So in order to do that, they have to fit in with culture. And names mean things, and we're, we're going to get into that. It's on your handout. They don't want a Hebrew name being called out in the court of a pagan god. That's, that's Why were their names changed? That's your answer right there. They're in a pagan land. They're going to receive pagan names. But what is what is important to understand is what their names were and what their names were changed to. These weren't just random names given. 
because names meant things in the Bible, just as they do today. And that wasn't just a Jewish custom. Names meant things for pagans as well. So, for many people, certainly the Old Testament Jews, names were, were important and part of their identity. So much so that you would be given a name on the eighth day of your birth, especially if you was a man-child, you would be circumcised per the custom, per the law, and your name would be declared. Right? We see that in Matthew on the eighth day, Jesus is, is circumcised and Joseph calls him Jesus. His, his name is declared. That's like us getting a birth certificate. That's your name. But then we have, like in the Old Testament, Jacob was given a name, but then his name was changed, right? His name was changed to Israel. and He's not the only one. Abram becomes Abraham. So your name meant something, and a name change signified something either catastrophic or great happening in your life, a change. What we would call salvation, when Jacob was given the name Israel, a covenant was made with him, right? When Abram was made Abraham, a covenant was made with him. There was a change there. They're both in Hebrews, in, in the hall of faith, their name was changed. Revelations 22, we get a new name. When we're glorified, when, the, when all this is over with, we're given a stone with a name that only we know. That Don't tell me that that ain't, that ain't going to be a catastrophic and great day for us, right? It's going to be changed forevermore. We're going to be made immortal. We're going to be glorified. I don't, I don't go into heaven with my earthly name. God has a spiritual name for me, which is crazy, craziness. So everyone, uh, every time... Uh, often the names were passed on within families or, or generations, so they would continue a name, same as we do now. My father's name is Richard. My name is Richard. My son's name is Richard. If he grows up to have a man-child and we can find a, another middle name that goes with Richard, that probably may be it. I don't know. Uh, my grandpa's name is Robert. My brother's name is Robert. His son's name is Robert. All different middle names. Uh, it's almost like the Rambo clan has three good names, and that's what we choose. Uh, <laughs> that's not true for anybody who's listening who is a relative. <laughs> Got to start with R. Well, it was R something R. We, we, you know, we wanted to keep it going. Family tradition, same thing there. They would choose a name because it was, that's my daddy's 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 name, right? Uh they would pass names on for generations, connecting the people to their forefathers. And moreover, Jewish names had meaning. They had meaning. So every time these boys were called by their name, uh, their Hebrew name, they were reminded of their God. Okay? Specifically because of what their names mean, and we're about to get into that. And that was exactly what the Babylonians didn't like. Right? They had their own gods. They just conquered the way that pagans believe, uh, especially then, they, they just conquered the Israelite God. Okay, it, it sounds blasphemous to talk about it like that because it, it, it truly is. But, but King Nebuchadnezzar and his gods conquered the Israelite God. Right, That's why they take the vessels out of the temple. They take the best, the cream of the crop, and it goes gets put into the temple of his God. Right? Because his God just conquered another God. The, the world at that time believed that there were many gods, okay? And that not only, it was the gods who were fighting, and I took my God into battle, and when my God won the battle, then I took everything back to his temple to show what his, my God had just done. So uh, Israelites done the same thing. They believe in Yahweh, the one true living God, when they fought the Philistines, they take the spools, put it in the temple. It worked both ways. The difference is we serve the one true living God, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't. What Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand is his God wasn't real, and it was the one true living God who, through his providence, used him as an instrument to do the one true living God's will. Right. So their names. 
their names were stripped from them because they didn't like the fact that it, their names specifically represented Yahweh, represented the Israelite God. Their Hebrew names were stripped from them, and in turn, they received a pagan name. And this was to remind them that the gods that conquered them was now who they were to serve. Okay, So this is pretty humiliating, uh, especially for an Israelite, for a Hebrew, to have their God-given name taken from them and then in place given a name from a pagan god. So we have Daniel. Daniel means God is my judge. Yahweh is my judge, however you want to say it. His name was changed from God is my judge to Belteshazzar, which means Baal's prince. These these were specifically chosen for them. So Daniel, every time Daniel was said, Daniel would know that God is my judge. God is my judge. God is my judge. Now when he hears his name, Belteshazzar, he's to remember that he's Baal's prince. That's pretty contrast, right? Pretty crazy contrast. Hananiah, beloved by the Lord, beloved by Adonai, was changed to Shadrach, which means illuminated by sun god. He's got a pretty generic one. The name Mishael, who is Asgod, that's a pretty crazy name, right? In other words, kind of like what we say in the New Testament, being the image bearer of Christ. That's, that's what his name meant. One who is Asgod was changed to Meshach, which means who is like Sheak, which is believed to be the Babylonian goddess corresponding with Ishtar or Venus. Okay? And the name Azariah meant the Lord is my help. His name gets changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nago, which was another god. Okay? So not only were their names changed, but their names were changed in such a way that every time their name was called, it was an indictment against their God. Okay? So their names was changed simply because they were now to be representatives of a pagan nation, but it goes a lot deeper than that. That's the physical physicality of it. The spiritual side of it was it was an indictment against the one true living God. Some people take, uh, take new names when they come to faith. We see that in the New Testament. Paul, or Saul, becomes Paul, right? Saint, he, it, Saul and Paul, it's not that he changed his name. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. But he went by a different name because something had changed, right? He had found God, or God had found him. And we see that even today. Some, some people have such a radical change, and they, they come from such a lifestyle that they don't want any part of that life to, to follow them into the life to come. So they'll change their name. They'll go by a different name. If they went by a nickname on the streets or something, they, they go by their given name. They, they disassociate themselves from the past, right? That man is dead, right? That's, that's if I went by Richard and Richard was such a horrible person, right, as, as a lost person, now I go by Scott because I don't want I don't want anything to do with that past life. We see that even still today. Uh, their name can be witness to people around them. Uh, Jesus promised we we read in Revelations two. I said twenty two. I'm sorry. Revelations two and seventeen says this. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. How significant and special is that? that the only one who's going to know the name that God has designated for you is you and God. Pretty crazy. Talk about a personal, a personal walk, a personal God. He's so personal that he covets the name that he gives you or he keeps and then he, he gives. So that's the name change. Man, we're making good time. Were they eunuchs? Here comes the good one. It's not it's it's not as bad it's not as bad as y'all think. I was I was surprised 
and, and another reason why I like the NASB translation, uh, they've taken a lot of time to make sure that they get not only the original words right, but the definitions for those words right as well. Uh, we get lost in translation in our English language because we have so many, we have so less words than the rest of the world, if you want to believe that or not. We, we take one word and make it have 15 different meanings, right? <clears throat> so, were they eunuchs? Short answer. Y'all ready? The Bible does not say. Uh, we do, however, have compelling evidence to say maybe. Maybe for Daniel and the three Hebrews, but most likely for others. So we need to remember that when we, we start breaking down Isaiah and 2 Kings and the, the specific prophecy of this fulfillment, um, that there wasn't just four people taken in this capture. It was multiple taken. We only have the accounts of these four, though. Okay, They were separated uh, for whatever reason. And, and made to be above the rest. But there's, there's no telling how many of these youths there were under the, the, the mastery of the head eunuch. Okay? There's no telling. For this three-year period, there is a lot of people who are about to be put into this court. How many people does it take to govern a foreign land? It's going to take quite a bit, right? It's going to take quite a few. <clears throat> probably more at the beginning and less as time goes on. See, Bab Babylon rose to power, as history would say it, basically overnight. But they didn't know that they were going to fizzle out that quick as well. They were, they were establishing their reign, right? So they don't even really have time to utilize Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all these people to their full extent because... 70 years, and before 70 years, Babylon's captured by another people group. That's what starts the, the transition back to Israel, is the people who take over Babylon go, we don't need all these people. Who are you? Go home. <laughs> you know, get out of here. So God is sovereign, and he's providential, and he knows all of this. They had no idea. Daniel was going to die in Babylon for all he knew. They had no idea what was going to happen. So again, the short answer is the Bible doesn't say specifically. There's not like Daniel 1 in verse 8, right? doesn't say, and they were made eunuchs. That would be pretty cut and dry. But I didn't want to just say we don't know and leave it from there because the Bible does give us some context and history give us, gives us context as well. <clears throat> so the Bible doesn't say, but we are uh, we are uh, able to see some compelling evidence to say maybe, and, and most likely for others, there were eunuchs made just because that was the custom of the Eastern world at the time. When you took captives, you made eunuchs. It, it was just to show a dominance that for no other reason, no spiritual reason, uh, just to show that you were greater than they were, you made eunuchs out of some of the men. So just by that alone, we can say that there were some who were made eunuchs. Babylon falls in the Eastern culture. If you look where Babylon is, it's right smack dab in the East, not even the Middle East, the East. Oriental culture, it, it's all the same thing. So the Bible foretells the exiles of both the northern and the southern kingdoms as far back as Leviticus. How many people knew that? I called Matt last night just to make sure I I didn't dream this up or whatever. And uh, But it does. If you want to turn to Leviticus 26, we'll read a few verses. You want to talk about the sovereignty of God? They 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 still got the leeks and the garlics in their mouth from from being slaves in Egypt, and God is already telling them, if you don't follow my statutes, that's going to happen again. You're going to be taken by somebody else. Leviticus 26:33-35 says this: You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you. As your lands become desolate and your cities become waste, 
then the land will enjoy the Sabbath of all the days of the desolation. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbath. All the days of its desolation, it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbath while you were living on it. So Leviticus 26, God's already telling them. Read the, read the full chapter to get all of the context, but he's basically saying blessings to you if you follow my statutes. And then it switches and it says, but if you do not follow my commandments, this is going to happen to you and 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 I'm going to multiply your sins sevenfold. He says that several times throughout chapter 26. And it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse of a judgment till we get to verse 33 where he says, and if you still will not come to me, I'm going to take you out of the land. That's in Leviticus. You would think with the hindsight that we have, it's hard to look back and go, why did, why were they such knuckleheads? Like, why didn't they just do what God told them to do? But we're the same way. If we, if we're honest with ourselves, we know the truth. We know how we're supposed to live. And yet that's the struggle every day. Is it not? We're, we're the same as these Israelites. And sometimes we find ourselves in desolate places. Sometimes we find ourselves in such a bind that it feels like we're strangers in our own land. But the promises of God are still there. Come back to me, right? Turn from your wicked ways. Repent, and I'll give the land back to you. Uh, As it moves closer to the actual capture, God gives more and more detail to his warnings. He doesn't stop saying... This is going to happen. We see in Isaiah 39, you can turn there. And this is where we're going to camp out for for about 10 minutes or so. Because Isaiah 39, uh, verses 5 through 8, and 2 Kings 20, verses 16 through 19 is the same account. Okay, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles is the history of of the kings of Israel. Isaiah is a prophet to the king. So Isaiah has his own book. But then 2 Kings records what Isaiah said. It's the same thing. But it, is it not more important? God, God thought it prudent to put it twice in the Bible. So maybe we should pay attention to it. Isaiah 39 verses 5 through 8. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, for there will be peace and truth in my days. And then if you want to turn to 2 Kings 20, if not, it's on your handout. It's the same word for word verbatim of what Isaiah said. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, that's that's 2 Kings 20, verse 16 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in the store to this day will be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. This is literally word for word, right? Says the Lord, some of your sons whom shall issue from you, who you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he thought it is not so if there will be peace and truth in my days. That's our prophecy. Daniel 1 is telling us of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Okay? That's, that is where our context comes from. This is where our biblical uh, merit, if you will, is Daniel true? Yes, because the Bible backs it up. Okay? So let's dive into this fulfilled prophecy because Isaiah and second Kings is, is a, it's a prophecy to come. It has not happened yet. Okay. Daniel is firsthand account of a fulfilled prophecy. They are in Babylon whenever Daniel is written. 
So Daniel gives firsthand account to the fulfillment of this specific prophecy. So if we look at the prophecy, we should be able to piece together details and come up with an informed maybe. <laughs> okay, because remember, I don't want to say what the Bible doesn't say. I can't say yes and I can't say no, but what we can do is uh, it's basically left up to an interpreter. At the end of the day, it doesn't change the story of Daniel to, to believe him to be mutilated or not, right? So I give you the, I give you the context and the, the information that I found, and y'all go home and pray about it. Settle it in your heart one way or the other, and it's going to be okay. It'll be all right either way, okay? <clears throat> God said Babylon would come, Babylon would defeat, and Babylon would take away everything that was stored up in Israel. Nothing would be left, okay? And this definitely happened. You can look at the accounts in 2 Kings, uh, and there was nothing left. There's actually three different times. He comes... And he besieges the city the first time on his way back home. He's not even coming to defeat Israel. He went to defeat the Egyptians, defeated the Egyptians. And then on his way back, he said, while we're here, let's besiege Jerusalem. And he besieges Jerusalem. And I know it's funny, but it, that, this, is, this is history. That's it. Well, we're already at this part of the world. Let's go ahead and, let's go ahead and do it. They had no idea who the Israelites were. They, they didn't care. They were nothing to them. But God said, you're going to be the instrument to do this. And he literally took their campaign to end the Egyptians and swayed them to take the Israelites. So they besieged the city. And they do this for days. And then finally, the king, the son of Hezekiah, comes out the king, his wife, his court, and his descendants. They all walk out because he says he won't kill us all. Basically, he's too coward to meet the king outside the city walls. So his whole family, his whole court, the whole palace goes out, and they capture all these people. Daniel was in those people. Okay? That's important, and we'll come back to that. That's the first that's the first capture. Then Babylon comes back and takes another load. And then they go back the third time, and that's when the temple is destroyed. That's when everything is desolated, that everything is gone. There's nothing to go back to. Okay, But it's important to understand that where Daniel comes from is that first, that first capture where the king of Israel takes his whole palace. The whole tribe of Judah goes out there to meet this king thinking, if we just bow down to him, he'll leave us alone. And he goes, no, y'all coming with us. So they take the whole leadership of Israel. Then Israel's easy pickings. It's literally just however long it takes the journey to get back and forth. And we're going to start carting these people to our land. So there's nothing left. They take everything. They take it all. So we know that that part's true. So then we get to the issue at hand. And some of your sons who will issue from you, who you will beget, in other words, from, from Hezekiah, okay, the lineage of Hezekiah will, will be taken away and they will become officials or eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. We also see this to be true because Daniel is literally recording this for us. In the third year of King Jerichoam's reign, Nebuchadnezzar took us to make us part of his court. Okay? So we know that that's true. Daniel and the three Hebrews were literal sons of the tribe of Judah. We see that in verse 6. Daniel, by his own decree, says, Now among them from the sons of Judah. Okay? That's from the tribe of Judah. So Daniel was royalty. Oh, no. I lost all my stuff. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Not the time that I want to be doing it. 
<laughs> I spent a lot of time to write this down. Uh, Daniel's royalty. That's important to the prophecy. Because if we could have said Daniel wasn't royalty, then the prophecy doesn't apply to him and he'd be fine. So Daniel and these Hebrew boys, these, these youths, were part of the tribe of Judah. So they come from the lineage of David, which would also be the lineage of Hezekiah. So we know that that's true. This confirm this is also confirmed. I'm doing biblical and history as well. This is also confirmed by the Jewish historian Josephus, and it's the biblical descriptor that Daniel gives himself in verse six. So we can't we can't not say that he's not royalty because he is. The Hebrew word for official, all right, or eunuch, is saris, meaning eunuch or court official. This is where we start to break down what the Bible is actually telling us here. I, I don't know Hebrew. Google did a pretty good job at breaking it down for me. Uh, I'm getting to know Greek. When I look at it, I don't freak out so much, but it's still, it's still <laughs> not to be punny or anything, but it, it looks like Greek to me still, so I, I can't read it or anything. But <laughs> Sharice which means eunuch or court official. So per God, okay, to paraphrase his, his prophecy, Babylon is coming. When they take the land, they will conquer you. So you're not going to fight them off. This is happening. They will take everything from golden vessels to children, and those children will be Sharis to the king. Okay? That's, that's, that's what they're going to be. Now, Time for the history lesson. To be a eunuch, okay, does not necessarily mean mutilation. That's important to know. Every eunuch wasn't a eunuch by mutilation. I believe this is why we were not told specifics as to who or what happened to the captives taken uh, to work in the king's court because ultimately... it doesn't pertain to the providence of God. He can use whoever he wants, however he wants. Um, it could mean literal mutilation of the men, but I don't believe that this is the case, and here's why. i got three points. Like I said, this is, this is what Scott believes. I'm giving you the information, and then we can talk about it, okay? First... Was it in the best interest to Babylon to mutilate all these men? That's a question that I ask. Okay, remember why they're why they're setting this up. Okay, they've stole all of these youthful men from Israel with all of their kosher laws, their biblical law, all everything in place to brainwash them and to set them back up as leaders in Israel. That's that's the goal. Okay, so to mutilate every one of these men would mean that these men could not enter the camp. They would be deemed unclean. So in my little mind, to mutilate somebody in such a way that they couldn't be effective in the leadership of their hometown, it doesn't make sense. Okay, It defeats the purpose. Why spend all the time educating these men why spend all the time, all the provisions, give them the best education, the best food, the best drink, living in the palace, all of this, just to them not to be fruitful for me? It just didn't make sense for me. Uh, to make the Hebrews eunuchs would prevent them from becoming accepted leaders. Nobody would listen to an emasculated man in Israel. It's just impossible. Uh, especially over their own people now under Babylonian rule. These sons of Judah, which the prophecy says and Daniel says, were given the best education. They're given food, uh, the best food for three years, the best drink for three years. They're literally, if you want to use a biblical term, sanctified, that is set apart from the rest of the captives to be these officials, these eunuchs. They're given, uh, they're being groomed to be leaders. They're, they're the officials of Babylon now to occupy Israel. 
Why would Daniel, this is another question I had. So first, was it in the best interest of, of, of Babylon to emasculate them? I would have to say no. I, to me, it just doesn't make sense. The next question I had is, why would Daniel make such a big deal out of defiling himself with food, a sin he could be cleansed of? So you could break a kosher law, and there was ways back into the camp, right? There, there was penance. There was, there was cleansing that could happen to put you back in right standing with God. Why would he make such a big deal about eating defiled meat if he had been defiled in such a way that he could not be cleansed? It, it just That didn't make sense to me either. Other than maybe holding on to what you could hold on to, I don't think he would risk literally his life if he had been emasculated to the point to where I'm unclean. I'm unclean either way. What's the point? Right. It seems crazy to think that I, that I would care what kosher law I was breaking after being mutilated to the point where I, I couldn't even enter the temple of God. I couldn't. I couldn't be of Israel. Read Leviticus. It's it's in there. <laughs> Believe it or not, it is. Uh, someone who was made a eunuch or emasculated was was like a leper. Was like someone who. No respect. They just they they were outside the camp. The only difference is a leper had a had a chance that if he was if he was cured he could he could be back in he could be cleansed. A eunuch could not. Yeah. Thank God we don't live in them times, right? Because Matthew 19 is going to tell us what we already know where we're going. There's eunuchs by different ways. Right? Some some are born that way, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, I went deep with this for you, Steph. I went deep with this. That's why the sufficiency of the Word of God. Never in, never in a million years would I think I'd be in, end in Matthew when I'm starting in Leviticus. But here we are, okay? Lastly, but definitely not least, history, as well as Matthew 19, shows us that there are different kinds of sharis, of eunuchs. One's born, one's made to be, and even ones who make themselves to be eunuchs. But Matthew 19, y'all go ahead and turn there. Ones that make themselves eunuchs specifically for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So we're not talking about emasculating ourselves, as some through history have done. Catholic religion got it wrong a lot of different ways. And one of those ways was... If you just could not stop your sexual sin, do away with your sexual parts. That's a good way to... Right. If, if you can't do it, then you won't be tempted by it, right? That's not true, though. The desire is still there. You just can't do anything about it. That is not what Christ is talking about, and I believe gives us the context that we need to, to say that they most probably were not emasculated, but eunuchs. All right? And, and this, is, this is it. Let's go ahead and read 19 so we can get it in our head. Uh, it's in verse 10. Now, Christ is talking about divorce right here. We just went through this not too long ago in Mark. This is the same account, okay? Matthew gives us a little more detail. And the disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, okay, it is better not to marry. Christ basically said, you, you pick this person and you're with this person until you die. That's the, way, that's the way it should be. And the disciples said, whew, that's hard sometimes. Maybe it's better if we just stay single. Okay? But then listen to what Christ says. But he, being Jesus, said to them, not all men can accept this statement. So not all men can be single. Not all women can be single. Okay? But only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs. Now, that's the Greek word for eunuch, but it means the same thing as the Hebrew. Who were born that way from their mother's womb, so you're able to be a eunuch from birth. Okay? There are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. That is emasculation. And there are also eunuchs who have been themselves or made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. 
that little statement there at, at the end made me throw a pretzel in my head for a second. How can I make myself a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven? That would mean that it's not sinful, one, that I've set myself apart for the kingdom of heaven. Yes, that's that's where my mind went. Self-torture, but it's not. Okay? Yes. So here we go. You ready for this? Jesus, I believe, gives us the detail we need to conclude that Daniel and his follower, his fellow Hebrews could both be whole, all right, in a physical sense, and serve in the king's court because that's, that's another thing of history. You had to be a eunuch to serve in the king's court, okay? You had to, you had to be. That was part of it. Depending on where you were in the court was the difference between if it was a physical eunuch or if it was just someone who took a vow of celibacy. Okay? And that's where we're going with this. The term eunuch simply means this, that someone is by some means unable to procreate. If you, if you told me to boil down what a eunuch was, that's, that's how I would simplify it. Is it's by some means, whether by birth, by man's hand, or by my own doing, I'm unable to procreate. Okay? As Matthew 19 records, Jesus says that this can be natural causes. It can be by unwanted force, or it can also be by means of voluntary will. A vow of celibacy was generally taken by the king's court to show unwavering devotion to the king. In a sense, eunuch by choice or by vow. You chose. They had great reputation, right? You read that. They were placed under the master of the eunuchs, that is, the head official of the court. So by the even by in Daniel's time, especially by the time of our New Testament, eunuch had taken a dual meaning. It could mean one who was emasculated or one who worked in the king's court. Because either one, you were devoted to the king above all else. And the way that you showed that devotion was to let go of the one thing that you cared about the most, which was your desires. Okay? Not everybody could do this. That's why some were made eunuchs. The ones who could keep a vow were able to keep the vow. So a vow of celibacy was generally taken by the king's court to show unwavering devotion to the king, in a sense, eunuch by choice. A vow that the Hebrews would keep, especially, and this is this is what sealed it for me, why would a Hebrew be allowed to take a vow when others were made to be eunuchs? They stood up over a kosher law. They were able to, they were, in essence, standing up in fear of their life and saying, I'm not going to eat your meat to the point where if you kill me, I'm still not going to eat that meat. They weren't going to break the law of their God. The court seen this. The master of the eunuchs knew this. So a vow that the Hebrews would keep, especially ones bent on keeping God's law, including the one that says what? Do not commingle with pagans. You don't have to worry about it, sir. We're not going to commingle because I'm not going to break God's law. It wasn't a vow of celibacy to Nebuchadnezzar. It was a vow of celibacy to keep God's law. So, were they eunuchs? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They set themselves not to do it. That's it. They didn't want to have no part in that. That's it. They weren't going to break covenant with God. So they were. Scott. Scott here. Scott's translation. They were eunuchs in the sense of they were court officials and they were right there with the king. Uh. But they were they were eunuchs, as Christ would say, by choice. I don't believe they were made 
to be uniques. They were UEs. They were UEs, yeah. Yeah, that's it, that's it. So, any questions? You've been listening to the Learning Curve podcast brought to you by Abundant Grace Church here in DeVille, Louisiana. Uh, we invite you to look at our webpage. It is www.abundantgracechurchonline.com. Uh, there you can find all the different ways that you can uh, be in contact with us. Thank you. Thank you.